Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm George Burroughs, filling in for Fred Deuce today. In this podcast, we have headed out to Brookings Mountain West in the desert here in Las Vegas, Nevada. I am lucky to be joined today by Pat Mulroy, Senior Fellow of the Brookings Institution, NUNLV, Boyd School of Law. Thank you, Pat, for being here. My pleasure to be here. Today's actually a real treat because we came here to the desert, and we are at UNLV's radio studio, and I'd like to thank them from the outset, to talk with Pat about her leading experience in the water industry and dealing with water issues and what's going on now with this drought that's been going on for years, and now they're saying it's going to be a 20-year drought. California is missing their benchmarks on water efficiency, and they don't have any money coming from the federal government. What is your read on that situation right now? Okay, there's a couple things wrapped up in what you said. First of all, whether this drought lasts 20 years or it lasts 5 years or it lasts 10 years is anybody's guess. I mean, scientists run models and then they come up with some approximation. I've learned in this business one thing on the Colorado River. If it's probable, don't expect it to happen. If it's improbable, expect it tomorrow. So that having been said, I know that um, California has got a nightmare on their hands right now. This is the second really hideous year of snowfall in the Sierras. Now, we're still sitting here in late March, and the Sierras, as have the Colorado, the Rockies, been known to have extraordinary April snow dumps. We have to work on the assumption, though, that that's not going to happen right now. But it's out there. It could happen, but not likely. And they are really scrambling, especially down in Southern California. I think the Central Valley, the farmers in the Central Valley, those that could use groundwater last year did. I'm not sure that's there for them this year. I think they've they pumped so much groundwater last year that they would have to dramatically deepen their wells, and the water's increasingly getting saline the further down they go. They're going to lose a lot of their crops. The Urban dwellers in Southern California, last year, the Metropolitan Water District had enough water in their various storage reservoirs in order to be able to get through. But this year, they are already talking about what kind of a reduction are they going to give their retail customers. They were very, very disappointed. I was there last week, and I spoke to them last week. they were very disappointed in not meeting the benchmarks. And I think the governor is getting more aggressive. I think the Water Resources Board in California is getting more aggressive. But conservation is a journey. And it's amazing. Even if you don't meet your benchmarks in one year, if in the following year the public all of a sudden gets it, if you will, they'll make dramatic cuts in how much water they use. The economic effects of this, 80% of California's water goes to the ag- agriculture. And what is it like on the ground there for the economy looking towards the future with this drought continuing and continuing? Well, I think the key for California is getting re- resolution around the Bay Delta. The Sacramento-San Joaquin Bay Delta is a problem that has been kicked down the road and kicked down the road and kicked down the road. I not only laughed but smiled ear to ear when um, a year and a half ago or two years ago, Governor Brown said he's done with the nonsense. I mean, this is a problem he inherited from himself. He, When he was governor the last time, 
the San Joaquin, Sacramento Bay Delta was a big issue. There are so many different dynamics at play. It is such a complicated ecosystem. There are so many users depending on it that the time for them to find resolution around it has come. And a lot of that is human beings unable to find a way to work together and wanting absolute answers in a world where you're not going to get absolute answers. So as I said to them last week, it's time for you to think about developing a process moving forward where you make decisions year to year in the Bay Delta as conditions change, but let the facilities be built that need to be built in order to relieve some of the pain and suffering that this drought is causing. How many years was it now that you were the general manager for the Southern Nevada Water Authority? Well, I retired about a year ago. So you were, and you started in 1993, for those that don't know. And how did you get into this industry? Where did you start? I mean, I, I've heard... Laughingly, I will just tell you, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, I came to the United States um, having been born and raised in Germany and having studied in Munich for three years. And I was a German lit major, German literature major. It's like being an English literature major, just in a different language. I came to UNLV because they offered me a full scholarship for my senior year and a guaranteed teaching assistantship for my master's. Having gotten those, I then became a teaching assistant at Stanford University working for my doctorate. My family's financial condition changed, and my mother asked me if I was going to be a perennial student or if there was going to come a time in my life where I was going to earn a living. And she wanted me to help put my sister, me to financially help put my sister through school. So I came back to Las Vegas, which had now become my adopted home in the United States since I had no other home in the United States. And I had always worked during the summers at the Center for Business and Economic Research here at UNLV. And friends of mine that were still here were starting to work for the new revamped, revised Clark County government. They said there were job openings, so I applied. I came into Clark County and quickly became part of their legislative team. Um, working in politics and in government policy was always the area I enjoyed the most. After uh, several years of doing that, I was asked to go over to Justice Court and create the first Justice Court Administrator's position, get that legislation through the legislature, and then quickly decided I probably didn't want to work for judges. So I changed my mind and I was offered a job as the deputy general manager over at the water district, over administration. So I took it. I knew nothing about water what at was the time. That, what was that learning curve like for you when you came right in knowing nothing about water? It was interesting. I, You know what? Honesty goes a long way. And if you look at the engineers and you go, all right, let's just get something straight right at the beginning. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a chemist. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a mechanic. I'm not a hydrologist. It's amazing. There was a transformation that was going on in Southern Nevada at the time. And when the way we describe it here, everything blew up in 1989, 
when the entities were at war with one another over water because Southern Nevada was growing too fast and we were going to run out of Colorado River water long before we anticipated it, the board at the time made a decision because my predecessor had had left and they said, the new general manager, we need somebody who understands government and government policy and we don't need an engineer or a hydrologist or an accountant. So they wanted someone that knew the ropes, could get things done. And when you came in right off the bat, you're honest with the engineers. Looking back on that, what was the greatest challenge you faced in that that career from 1993 to, 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 to 2014? The greatest challenge with all the water challenges coming at us was getting people to work together. The single hardest thing to do. And it started with the creation of the authority where five disparate water agencies came together and we formed the Southern Nevada Water Authority through a joint powers agreement where we did some things unprecedented in the West. We gave up our priority water rights and said the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. We're going to pool our resources. So what are the priority water rights? What is that? Oh, this is the West. First in time, first in right. So the theory is... Finders, keepers? Yes. The first pioneers in who apply and get water rights, theirs are more protected than those that come later. For example, it was two years ago when Wyoming had a lousy snow year in the Rockies. And my friend Pat Terrell from who is the state engineer for the state of Wyoming, said to me, Pat, i got to cut all water rights that have a priority date past 1870. So that's the way the system works. It depends what year did you get your water right. How do you come in and convince somebody of that? They don't have a choice. (laughs) The law is the law. So is that something similar to eminent domain? You just come in and you say, hey? No, everybody understands that system out here. They do? Everybody understands that system. Now... I have been known in some of my snarkier speeches to suggest that maybe the 21st century needs to see a somewhat modified version of priority water rights. That, you know, at the end of the day, if you look at the way the West was developed, the city's rights are all junior to the farmer's rights. The biggest challenge we have going forward here in the next 10 years is going to be able, is finding a bridge between farmer and city, finding a way for the farmers and the cities to start working together in a much more cooperative fashion than they have for the last 30 years. So just kind of bringing people to the table, making them realize your fates are intertwined. Well, yes. And you don't do it with money. Everybody thinks if I offer the farmer enough money, he'll relinquish his rights. Well, that's naive because you have to look at the way some of these agricultural districts are structured. The landlords long ago left the valleys. They sublet their land to tenant farmers who own neither the water nor the land, but whose livelihoods are dependent on their agricultural production. What's in it for them? They're the ones, and they're the ones that run the districts that are going to do the pushing and the shoving. Now, I don't know that many people know this. I didn't know this until I started doing research for this and we came here. But you, we fly in, you fly over the ridge to come land at McCarran Airport and you see the glow of the Strip and you see the Bellagio Fountains. 
and you sit there and you go. I knew you'd go to the fountains. I, I, you, I knew not? you'd go I? to the fountains. But okay, so you sit there and you go. Lake Mead's elevations dropped. This is a water crisis. But how do you explain this to people? But many a people community uses its water in various ways. It uses it for its residences, and it uses it for its economy. The entire Las Vegas Strip with the fountains and 40 million tourists a year that come through, as their net water footprint, they use 3 to 4% of all the water. And that's amazing. How do they do that? And they are the single largest employer in the state of Nevada, the single largest producer of state taxes, because Southern Nevada recycles 93% of its wastewater. That's the secret. So everything that's used inside in those hotels is captured, treated, and reused, either indirectly or directly. So the those outside fountains, visually, they are a horrible public relations nightmare. <laughs> In terms of actual water use, right. they're nothing. They're nothing. And most people don't know that. No, they don't. They see the fountains. People who live here. I can't tell you how many local groups I've stood in front of when we were telling them, look, we'll pay you to take your grass up. Well, what are you going to do about the fountains? Nothing. <laughs> look, we actually tried at one point to differentiate between fountains in that have an economic footprint, like in front of a hotel, or ones that have no economic value whatsoever, like in a shopping center. I'm going to go to the grocery store, whether that goofy little fountain is on or not. (laughs) It created a firestorm in this valley. And finally, the authority said, look, you can keep your fountain if you remove enough grass to equal 50 times the amount of water that that fountain uses in a year. It was a great trade-off. So that brings me to my next question. In 2002, you faced a real looming water crisis for the future of southern Nevada. Correct. Can you take me through what happened that morning when you found that out? Well, we had been watching the snowpack in the Rockies pretty closely, and You have to understand the reason why we were getting nervous is we had signed an agreement, and this is great techno-speak, lovingly called the Interim Surplus Guidelines, that Bruce Babbitt had cattle prodded us into signing. That was hugely important to Southern Nevada because it allows us to temporarily overuse Lake Mead as long as Lake Mead was over a certain elevation. Well, that morning, that Monday morning, we had our usual 9 a.m. staff meeting, senior staff meeting, and my deputy general manager for engineering and operations came in, and she said, we have a huge problem. She says, the snowpack is not going to exceed 30%. We don't even think it's going to hit 30%. That means Lake Powell's going to drop that means meat's going to go down. That means we're going to drop below the elevation in which we can overuse the reservoir. What was the elevation of Lake Mead and what was it going to drop to? Well, when in 2000, the elevation of Lake Mead was roughly about 1,220 feet above sea level. We were now reaching a point where it was going to drop below 1145, which is the magic number above which you can take surplus. Sitting here today, Lake Mead sits at around 1080. And within the next 18 months, 
barring a miracle storm, it looks like it will hit 1067. And how much rainfall have you had over the last year? It's not rain. Everyone, every time it rains in southern Nevada, the residents go, oh, good, drought's over. No. The rain is an inch or two in Lake Mead. In order to understand volumetrically what's in that reservoir, at reasonable elevations, one foot in Lake Mead is 100,000 acre feet. It is an enormous amount of water. Between Mead and Powell, you have over 50 million acre feet in storage when they're full. So to have them both going down to quarter capacity is a pretty scary proposition. And so now you have to get convince this community to make a culture shift in how they use their water, conserve their water, the efficiency. How did you even begin to approach that? I can't even tell you how proud I am of this community. And I think our business community was an invaluable partner in that. I went straight to the, the gaming and to the gamers. I went, I had a long talk with Steve Wynn. Um, I talked to everybody up and down the strip. I went to the chambers. Um, I went to the home builders. And I said, okay, guys, things have to change. And we, we, de- began a culture in the 90s of bringing the community into the resource planning process. And so we brought the community into a conservation planning process. And we they very quickly realized that the only place we could conserve that was meaningful was outside because we recycled. Was that a very was that the best maybe effective public relations policy you did was Absolutely. Cuz so they could understand Absolutely. And you build up the data you give them the data and you run the models for them. And if they say run the model this way, you run the model the other way and nothing changes and you know nothing's going to change. But they have to see it and they have to understand it. Once the community, especially the business leadership of the community, and you don't just reach out to the businesses. You have people from homeowners associations. You have senior citizens. You have environmentalists. You have everybody. Um, solving the same problem. And it is the critical part of any integrated resource planning process. Well, once they embrace it, then they become your activists. Then they become your mouthpieces. Then it's easy to go to the newspaper and get a supportive editorial. And then water rates can be raised and um, measures can be taken. So it's It was an amazing process, and, you know, at the end of the day, the community responded so well that within a few short years, during a period where we increased our population by another 400,000 people, we cut our water use by a third. That is unbelievable. That was in a really short amount of time. Very short amount of time. It was a very aggressive campaign. We paid—you have to give your customers— the understanding of why they have to change. You have to give an incentive to change. You have to give them the tools and the knowledge and what they can do and then be there to help them. Since you've retired and you've been here at the university and been at Brookings, have people uh, in government come to you and said, hey, how can we replicate what you did? Yes. And and how do you advise them like to, 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 to set forth a plan and get it working and 
whatever region they may be? Because I'm sure the dynamics might be a little bit different. The dynamics are very different. And the reason for change is always different, no matter where you go. And the first thing I recommend is start an integrated resource planning process. You start with what resources do we have, will we have, bring climate change modeling into it. That's where you introduce climate change modeling because then you get a range of possibilities. Then you have to have the community in a committee format or some kind of a dialogue where that risk assessment and that willingness of how much risk are we willing to accept, how much risk do we need to shed by doing something, that's a community decision. The utility can't be subscriptive about that. They can't tell you to do it. Nobody's going to accept it. They're going to go, oh, there goes government again. Right. And you're working at a local level. And you spoke about property rights and then water rights. But let's talk about it just as a basic human right and how people view water. Like, this is my right to, I have, you know, how, how can you raise the price on water for me? This is my human right. I can't tell you how many times someone, every time we went through rate hearings, especially near the end, the, the comment is always, I have a basic human right to water. I don't argue. I say, yeah, you do. You absolutely have a basic human right to, to water. But what you don't have a human right to is that there are massive pieces of infrastructure, large pipes, a treatment plant. First, they lift it out of the bottom of Lake Mead. Then they treat it to a extraordinarily high standard. Then they pump it 2,500 feet to your door. And all you have to do is turn that tap on. All that infrastructure didn't fall out of the sky. Someone's got to pay for it. So if you want to pursue your right to water, here's a bucket. Go to Lake Mead, take as much as you want, knock yourself out. And then people have to boil it and treat themselves and then they'll say. I mean, people need to separate in their mind the cost of the infrastructure and the cost, what it takes in power every year to treat water will blow your mind. But chemicals are the least of it. I mean, we had a $60 million power bill. We're we're probably the largest power user, barring cumulatively the strip, in Nevada. It takes an inordinate amount of power to lift, to treat, and to pump uphill. When you start to separate that out, that there's that infrastructure at the state level to get with the water, do people start to come, come onto your side and start to try to understand the issue more and maybe get more involved? Once they maybe separate themselves out from, yeah, maybe I don't want to take that pail down to the lake. You know, once you break they do, through. But then what we in the water industry did, and it worked very well for us, is we introduced a tiered rate structure. And that lowest tier, which is the first 5,000 gallons you use, that lowest tier is what we call a lifeline rate. It can't exist. It does not pay for the service. It's underwritten by those in the fourth tier and those in the third tier. They carry the cost to underwrite that first tier. So if you then, as we did, because Lake Mead kept dropping and we've got to build this huge tunnel underneath Lake Mead so that we can access even the last drop should the worst of all possible scenarios happen, and you add another billion dollars to your debt load and your capital cost, All tiers go up. This is where those that did what you asked them to do 
are not being rewarded as well as they thought they should be rewarded. We have pushed the tiered rate structures too far. There is a disaggregation that has to happen where we start loading more into the flat portion of the rate, especially when you're talking about paying for your debt. Climate change is happening whether people believe it or not. It's just happening, and, it, and it's a change in the way for a lot of things, how we're dealing even with wastewater. What advice do you have for regions that say, well, sit here and go, well, we're not in the desert. This isn't going to affect us. Or even the ones that might say, well, what could we do to prepare in the future? Well, those that say it doesn't affect us, okay, please name me a place that's safe, that's not going to experience some sort of climatic change. You're either going to have more brutal winters like the East Coast had, you're going to have flood events, you're going to have more tornadoes, you're going to have more hurricanes, you're going to have more unexpected catastrophic weather events if that's how you want to describe them, be they drought or be they flood. And either grouping, the water utility faces enormous challenges, either water quality challenges or, as is the case in so many of our cities in this country, the already stressed, decaying infrastructure gets pushed to the point where it can't handle it anymore, especially on the wastewater side. Most East Coast cities have storm sewer systems, not built for Hurricane Sandy's, not meant for the storm events that are coming at us. So there isn't a utility in the country or around the world that doesn't have to get its head around needing science as its partner. And let's look at what the possibilities are. Look at what your range of possibilities are and then Decide what is an acceptable risk to take. I want to wrap up with this one question that we uh, ask everybody at the end is, what do you have coming up on the horizon for you? Now, I know when you retired, you maybe took two months off yeah. before you got right yeah, back. Yeah, I failed into- at retirement. <laughs> so what do you have coming up uh, with your work at UNLV and at Brookings now? Um, what have you? Well, I'm working a lot with some of the students over at the law school. I'm going to be lecturing in some of the classes. Um, I'm going to be working with the Saltman Center for Conflict Resolution. Um, But one of the fun things that I've gotten involved with through Brookings is the World Economic Forum. I sit on the Global Agenda Council for Water. And in January in Davos, the World Economic Forum elevated water to the number one global risk that this planet is facing in the next 10 years. Right. Take a look at Jordan with all the refugees. We in this country have no idea how fortunate we are. We are a small minority around the world that actually has reliable 24-7 water. You go to large cities, be they in South America, be they in Asia, there are portions of the city that have 24-7, but then there are wide swaths where water comes once a week, once every two weeks, and you have to fill every container you can. And then you have to live off what you got. Or even worse, where you haven't got it at all, and you and women carry water. We don't understand. We've become so spoiled. So that's what you're working at? Just that little problem? Just that little problem. <laughs> okay. Well, I'd like to thank you for having us out here to the desert. 
Uh, it's been great, and you've been an excellent person to sit in a room and chat with today. Thank well, you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I would like to extend a big thanks to all these kind people out here at the UNLV radio studio that helped make this happen. From our engineer, Kylie O'Rourke, who's done a great job, the most accommodating manager of the studio, Frank Muller, who organized this and made it all happen for us to come out here and have a great visit. I would also really like to apologize to the great people of the state of Nevada, as I butchered the pronunciation of this beautiful state as Nevada throughout the podcast. I've learned my lesson. It is Nevada, 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 and I will be back to Nevada as soon as possible. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the Brookings Cafeteria, you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, brookings.edu forward slash BCP. That's three places you can find these. Again, my name is George Burroughs, and I was just guest hosting today's podcast for Fred Dews. Oh, Zach, I didn't even say you. I got to get you in there. Okay. All right, so you can't laugh through the window. You can't laugh through the window.